the start of summer. We're getting ready to hit the beach, fire up the barbecue, get together with friends and whanau. But... Brace yourselves, New Zealand. It's going to be a COVID Christmas. The model shows daily cases could rise to a level similar to our peak in July, about between 10 and 11,000 cases per day. It had been months since the last dedicated COVID-19 press conference when Deputy General Director of Health Andrew Old corralled the media to issue this grim reminder. As much as we all wish it were the case, we're not out of the COVID woods yet. But in the meantime, we've turfed the bulk of our pandemic restrictions. Gone are the masks on buses, the isolation for household contacts. We've deleted the COVID-19 tracer app from our phones. Hey, COVID! You were a bit of an egg in 2028. It was. Yeah. And we see you making friends in 21, 22, and the rest of ever. But guess what? We got plans too. Because we're overfighting and we're ready to win. <coughs> Watch out. Because you know what this is? It's the metaphorical door to freedom. I'm Matthew Scott, and today on The Detail, how does our attempt at a post-pandemic life stack up against another wave? Is New Zealand ready for another COVID summer? Newsroom's Mark Dulder has been reporting on the government's response to the pandemic since the beginning. I asked him how long we've got left in Andrew Old's proverbial COVID woods. My perspective on it would be uh, we may never be out of the woods, and certainly there's no reason currently to think that we will uh, be out of the woods anytime soon due to sort of the virus miraculously disappearing. Um, Everything we know about COVID so far and viruses in general tells us that, you know, yes, it will continue to mutate and evolve, but there's no particular reason that it would evolve to become less uh, severe than it currently is. It may, but but it's not guaranteed to. Um, And given the sort of quote-unquote, leaky vaccines that we have available to us, which do a really good job of stopping hospitalization, severe disease and death, but but don't really stop people from getting infected and don't stop people from passing the virus on. Um, you know, we're probably just going to be in this this sort of middle ground where, you know, it's not a crisis point. It's not like it was in March 2020, but it's also not just the flu, you know, we still have had more than 2000 people die of COVID this year, not with, but of, uh, and that's, you know, four times worse than you have in an average flu year. And, and the year's not, not over yet. So we, we may have to get used to the woods. Yeah, I think, um, people have spent a lot of the pandemic wondering when the pandemic will be over and mm. you can have arguments about, when something is pandemic and when it is epidemic and when it is endemic, but none of those terms have anything to do with necessarily the impact on the health system and on society and on people's health. Uh, You can have an endemic disease that still kills a lot of people every year, that still overwhelms health systems every year. You know, smallpox was endemic and it killed millions of people every year. So from that perspective... Yeah, we're we're just in the woods, and and it's it's less mm-hmm. clear. We have less certainty. It's a lot murkier than it was when it was just sort of elimination, or we're in an outbreak phase, but we will eliminate it. Um, but that's just sort of the the price you have to pay for not doing elimination anymore. With numbers tracking up, going into summer, is that a good time to have a spike in cases if we're going to have one at all? 
Yeah, I mean, it's much better to be dealing with this in summer for a couple of reasons. One is that from a health system perspective, we don't have as much demand on the health system in summer. We don't have flu, we don't have RSV and and other uh, winter respiratory diseases, uh, which means that if people do end up needing to go to hospital because of COVID, uh, there's a better chance that they'll be able to get care quickly and um, that healthcare workers also, you know, won't be sick and won't be off. They'll be able to to rise to meet the occasion. Um, the other reason that summer is useful is that we do a lot of stuff outside. We eat outside. We, we have parties outside. We go for walks and things rather than having people over to our homes or meeting up in a, in a cafe in the middle of winter. And so that just makes it harder for the virus to transmit. It, it means that we, you know, are probably likely to, to see fewer cases than if we were to experience the exact same conditions, but it was winter. Mm. So for once, our timing is maybe uh, good on this. Yeah, I think the July wave was interesting in its timing because it did come right after a huge period of pressure on the health system from flu. The surgeons say the number of surgery delays and deferrals have never been so bad, and it is likely to get worse as COVID-19 cases and flu cases climb. Nearly every public hospital in New Zealand is putting off planned surgeries due to winter illnesses. And in a particularly cold and wet winter as well. So we saw a lot of cases, we saw a lot of hospitalizations, and we saw a lot of deaths. You know, you could still see many cases, many hospitalizations and many deaths with this wave, but, but it's, it's better to be in summer than in winter. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, also going back to that point of just still being in the woods, the expectation is that we'll continue to see... Um, rises and falls, you know, waves and, and troughs for who knows how long, months, years. So it's not going to be unusual to get a summer wave, but it's not going to be unusual to get a winter wave either. Three factors essentially will dictate where things go next for Aotearoa. Waning population immunity, increase in new variants, and the changes in our collective behaviour. Of the three, the one that we can control is our behaviour. So the Ministry of Health have also talked about... A Christmas checklist is being prepared for actions we can take on holiday. Get vaccinated when your dose falls due. Test if you have symptoms. Isolate if you test positive and be prepared for COVID when planning your holidays. Things you're supposed to do in order to reduce risk. But I guess the question is, is there going to be the same level of compliance that we saw last year or during lockdowns? Yeah, do you think people are going to get on board with whatever their advice happens to be with the same uh, sort of enthusiasm as in the past? I think the answer is pretty clearly no. As long as something isn't required, people won't do it. We've seen that throughout the whole pandemic. You know, we had a lot of advice to download the, the QR code app and to use it to scan QR codes, and essentially no one did it until it was a legal requirement. Um, masks, likewise, were recommended on public transport for a long time, and no one did it until it was a legal requirement. Um, and now, you know, technically, masks are still recommended on public transport. But, um, you know, I take public transport every day, and I'm one of the very few people wearing a mask. And so uh, if all the Ministry of Health has, if all the government has, is more recommendations, then no one will do it. Uh, and, you know, that's just the the reality of sort of the the pandemic response has always been that recommendations in in New Zealand aren't followed, but restrictions or mandates are followed by a significant chunk of the population. These case numbers going up now, um, this is kind of coinciding with the the fact that right now we we have 
lost a lot of the restrictions that we had just a matter of months ago. We can say goodbye to the harshest COVID restrictions with the government scrapping its power to order lockdowns, managed isolation and vaccine mandates. Today, Cabinet has determined that based on public health advice, we are able to remove the traffic light system and with that decision, claim back the certainty we have all lost over the last three years. Is that going to accelerate this particular wave? Yeah, I think it definitely will. Um, The advice that ministers were given was that the two big impacts of the changes that we've seen over the past two months, that the the two biggest changes were going to be the removal of masks on public transport and and in just about any public space, uh, and the decision to allow household contacts not to isolate, but instead uh, they can continue to sort of go to work and school and whatever else as long as they take a, a test each day for five days. And so the conclusion was in the short term that would lead to an increase in cases and hospitalizations of around 50% higher than they otherwise would be. Um, but in the long term, the effect would be a little bit more muted, but it would still be there, maybe something in the in the realm of a 20% increase over the the, the next year in terms of the number of hospitalizations that we would see. And so, you know, going into a new wave, definitely we know um, isolating household contacts who have a 75% chance of ending up testing positive at some stage during the the period after they were exposed and wearing masks, those are things that reduce cases. And so getting rid of them, it means that we will see a bigger wave than we otherwise would. And, and that also means, you know, more people going to hospital and more people dying. Māori and Pacifica, aged over 40, are the latest group to get access to a second booster. But as for who might be next... The government's attitude to boosters beyond the third dose has been quite different from in other countries, where as the vaccines have become available, other countries have moved to make them available to most of the population. Here we've taken a much more targeted approach of um, making sure that a fourth dose is available for people who have a number of health conditions that that might make them more likely to experience severe disease. It's available to older people who we know are more likely to experience severe disease, and it's also available to Māori and Pacifica, who are maybe slightly younger than the rest of the the um, threshold for for age, because we know that younger Māori and Pacifica people are, you know, have the same risk from COVID as an older Pākehā person. That's the sort of been the approach so far overseas. It's quite different. So overseas, for starters, their regulators have been a lot quicker in approving uh, Omicron-specific vaccines. Um, in the United States, in the EU, in Australia, they have uh, either vaccines that tackle the BA1 Omicron variant or, in some cases, BA4, BA5 variants, and those are generally pretty widely available to people. So in the United States, for example, the advice was everyone who wants one, who is above the age of, of 18, uh, can and should go get an Omicron vaccine, regardless of you know where they were in, in their regular sort of vaccination schedule. We haven't approved an Omicron vaccine yet. Uh, it doesn't sound like we necessarily will approve one this year. And even if we do, it, the government says it doesn't really have any plans to roll them out until until the fall, because um, from their perspective, they're hoping to be able to distribute them right before we see a, a winter wave and to be able to sort of tamp down that wave. Um, but it's, it's a different approach than the one that's being taken overseas. 
The evolution of the virus presents new challenges for the health response, with a complex mix of variants now competing for hosts, the variant soup. So, it's not just case numbers on the rise, but the number of ingredients in the COVID gumbo too. Since the start of 2021, when we first saw variants that, you know, had a functional change to how the virus infected people and how quickly it spread and how severe it caused disease, uh, since then there's been a very predictable pattern of when a new variant arises that can outcompete the old one, it will take over and then it will be the new dominant variant. What we're seeing now is a lot of sub-variants of Omicron that are all able to outcompete the current dominant one, which is BA5, but it's not clear which one of them will win out in the end over each other or whether we might end up in a situation where they're all kind of circulating at about, say, you know, a third of it is XBB, a third of it is BQ11, and a third of it is BA46 or something, right? Where um, there's not just one dominant variant, but you've got lots of little ones. A lot of them have similar traits, and it's not because they come from the same branches of the Omicron tree, but because the virus is figuring out independently what's most effective at uh, evading immunity and at spreading faster in, in the current environment. And so it's uh, something called convergent evolution, which means that separate parts of the evolutionary tree end up looking a lot alike because they both happen to find the right mutation that allows them to right. um, have the, the peak fitness. And so it's thing you know you see that in the in the natural world outside the context of viruses as well, where you know bats and dolphins both use echolocation, but they evolved that independently of one another. And so we're kind of seeing that with some of these subvariants where they come from very different parts of the the Omicron evolutionary tree, but they look a lot alike because they're they're all selecting for the optimal traits that allow them to spread quickest. What is the impact of this variant soup idea? What does it actually mean for people in terms of that idea of being in the woods? Is that what's keeping us in the woods? The theory is even if COVID wasn't evolving so much, uh, you would still be in the woods, you would still see these waves and troughs because we know that immunity from both the vaccines and from catching COVID wanes over time, particularly immunity against being infected. And so we would expect to see a wave, lots of people get infected, the population gets really immune and it's hard for the virus to spread, cases fall, and then over the course of a few months that immunity wanes and there's a lot more susceptible people again, and then you see a repeat of that. What variants do is they kind of speed that process up because they're able to evade even some of the immunity that people get through infection or vaccination that the previous variant wasn't able to evade. And so uh, the variant soup shouldn't necessarily have a different impact on the wave than if we were just seeing one new version of Omicron that was overtaking BA5, but it will it will still speed up the wave. It will speed up and increase the number of cases you get in the end, the number of hospitalizations, and the number of deaths. David Welch is from the School of Computer Science at the University of Auckland. He calls himself a computational biologist. He tracks the development of the virus with mathematical models. He's been watching the variant soup simmer, and he's been getting some first-hand experience with his own bout of COVID. So, I mean, just looking at uh, cases recently, it... You know, we hit a real trough in cases back in sort of mid-September or so. Then we had the change in the restrictions. 
restrict all the restrictions were lifted pretty much apart from you know isolation and testing cases increased steadily since then um, and it looks like a large part of the increase so that, uh, in, in cases that we saw was not due to new variants but just due to the, the relaxation of restrictions but also in the background we've started to see uh, more and more new variants arriving and those have been having an impact around the world and they're starting to reach quite significant um, levels in New Zealand and, and maybe causing another uptick in cases. We've sort of reached a bit of a plateau, it had seemed, and then now cases seem to be increasing again, possibly. So the interesting thing is that in the past, um, we've seen pretty much one new variant come in with a large advantage over everything else, and it's become the dominant variant. And and so we saw that, you know, we saw that with Alpha, we saw that with Delta, we saw that with, you know, the early, early variants of Omicron. But now we're getting this whole sort of constellation of, of different variants, which have slightly differing ancestry, but they all seem to have somewhat of an advantage over, over what is still the main variant in New Zealand, um, BA5. And, and that seems to be related to what we call more sort of antigenic drift rather than these sort of big jumps that we've been, been seeing previously. Antigenic drift, that's the gradual accumulation of small changes to a virus that transform it over time. We, we sort of differentiate that from those sort, sort of more radical changes we saw, say, going from the Wuhan strain of the virus to Alpha or the big change we saw to Delta or the big change we saw to Omicron, which were more like well, jumps, evolutionary jumps, whereas drift is kind of one or two things changing at, at a time rather than suddenly coming along, which has got, you know, 20 plus changes. Okay, so the virus that we have here is gradually becoming something else that's right i mean that's that's how evolution works we're all mm. gradually you know every new creature is slightly different from its parent does that materially change how say for example a potential summer wave would play out probably probably not really you know so if you've got say if you have two sub variants variant a and variant b and they both have a say a 10 percent advantage um, and spreading over over the background variant, then that's pretty much the same as just having you know a single combined variant, say variant C, which was which also had a, a ten percent advantage. So it's not really it's not really like they 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 compete against each other. You know, you you can get situations where over longer time periods you can have kind of two sub variants or two variants of a, of a virus where one will kind of rise to prominence and, and then the other will rise to prominence and so on. But that's not really what we're seeing here. Basically, if you get infected with any of the subvariants around at the moment, you're expected to have protection against the other ones, at least in the short term. So um, we see more um, diversity in the variants, but we see very similar behaviour in terms of the, um, the broader outbreak. An expected increase in cases, along with an increasingly unpredictable mix of COVID-19 variants circulating in the community, means we need to keep our collective eyes on the ball. What effect does viral evolution, sort of maybe over the last few months, have on the population's immunity right now? It has quite a significant effect. 
you know, your your body can, your immune system can essentially forget about a virus a little bit, you know, which can make you more um, prone to getting infected if you're exposed to it. Or you can meet a virus that is just that little bit different from the previous virus you saw. Um, and again, that makes you more prone to getting infected with it if you're exposed to it. So, you know, that waning immunity mm. and viral evolution is sort of two sides of the same coin. Are we at a relatively vulnerable moments right now? Depending on just how effective these new variants are at getting around our immunity, we could be facing further increasing cases, kind of certainly in the early part of summer and you know possibly possibly through christmas and and early january as well and there's a there's a couple of variants you know we're mainly looking at at the moment there's one called bq 1.1 and that, that that has been here and slowly increasing for the last month and there's another one called xbb which caused a big spike in cases in singapore including a, a major increase in reinfections that's also been in New Zealand for yeah a month to six weeks. And then there's other variants out there which have been detected at lower levels in New Zealand but also seem to have a growth advantage against the background BA5. That said, though, because we have kind of had this mini peak in, in cases in the last you know two months since September, it's possible there's a little bit more immune protection in the community because of that sort of small wave than um, then some of our models might be accounting for. It's a little bit of a matter of waiting and seeing whether cases you know, continue growing for the next um, few weeks or whether it's a sort of slower growth and a, and a plateau off again. That's it for today. I'm Matthew Scott. The detail is public interest journalism, funded through NZ On Air and produced by Newsroom for RNZ. You can get us downloaded free to your mobile device every weekday from any podcast platform. Today's episode was engineered by Jeremy Ansel and produced by Sarah Robson. Bonnie Harrison is our associate producer. And thanks to Mark Dalda and David Welch. Kakite. Kakite.